Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Great. Good morning. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate security, intelligence, and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This morning's event is a part of the African Strategic Forum sponsored by the Institute of World Politics. I will begin by introducing our moderator for this morning, Professor Hashim Meki. Professor Meki has taught Arabic language, culture, and Middle East media at IWP since 2012. He's the owner of Bridge Language Solutions, providing an array of language translation, interpretation, and teaching services to the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, and the founder of Keeley Global, a nonprofit organization that promotes education, health, and economic empowerment in Sudan and the Republic of South Sudan. He holds a bachelor's degree in both political science and international studies from the City College of New York and a master's of arts in strategic studies and international politics from IWP. I would like to thank our panelists for joining us this morning. And then without further ado, I will hand it over to Professor Mackey. Thank you. Thank you so much, Hannah, for your kind introduction. As Hannah has said, my name is Hashim Mackey, and I coordinate and moderate the African Strategic Forum here at the Institute of World Politics. Thank you uh, to our guests again for uh, joining uh, on Facebook, YouTube, and this webinar. Uh, the African Strategic Forum, we'll say a little about it, that uh, invites leaders, independent thinkers, and experts from broad inter interdisciplinary backgrounds for in-depth conversations on African uh, key topics. Our event today is on the challenges facing Ethiopia and the way forward. For this event, we have invited uh, very thoughtful and distinguished leaders in their own uh, field of expertise, and uh, we're super excited that they would uh, help us break down the latest uh, on the Ethiopian uh, issue. Uh, this event, I would like to say a couple words uh, for the uh, co-organizers, uh, co and without their help, this event wouldn't have been uh, possible. First, uh, thank you so much, uh, Gannet uh, Ndusi, from the Ethiopian Advocacy Network and the American uh, Civic uh, Council. I would also like to thank uh, Mr. Busu Falaka and Mr. Florendo Chifukute, uh, the Executive Director of the Friends of Angola, who have uh, co-sponsored uh, co our today's event. Without further ado, I will introduce my panelists, then we can start our discussion. Our first panelist, who is joining us from Amsterdam, uh, in the Netherlands is, is Dr. Abnek, who is an anthropologist, historian, and carries out research on the history and culture of the ne uh, Near East Africa, particularly in Ethiopia. He is research professor of politics and governance in Africa, particularly uh, political anthropology at the African Studies Center at Leiden University in the Netherlands. So welcome, Dr. Abnek. Our second panelist is Bronwyn, uh, sorry, Ms. Uh, Bronwyn uh, Bruton, who is a democracy and governance specialist with extensive experience in Africa. Ms. Bron uh, Bruton is, in 2008 to 2009, was International Affairs Fellow 
in residence at the Council on Foreign Relations. Ms. Bruton has also served on a program, uh, as a program manager on the Africa team of the USAID Office of Transition Initiative as a policy analyst on the international affairs and trade team of the Government Accountability Office and a program officer at the Center for International Private Enterprise. So welcome, uh, Ms. Bruton. Our third panelist is Mr. Gusu Falaka, who has been human rights and democracy advocate for 18 years. Mr. Falaka serves on the board directors of Friends of Angola, uh, pro-leadership INC, senior policy advisor at the uh, Solidarity Movement for New Ethiopia. Gusu works in various peace, uh, peace building initiatives and programs in the USA and in Africa as well. And he holds uh, Master of Science from George uh, Mason University in Conflict Analysis. So welcome, Sir Falaka. Our fourth panelist is Yusuf Badawaza, who is the Senior Regional Advisor at Freedom House, having formerly served as the Senior Program Officer for Ethiopia. Prior to joining Freedom House, he was Secretary General of Ethiopia for Human Rights Council in uh, that was the Ethiopia's foremost human rights organization. So welcome, Yusuf Badawaza. Our fifth panelist and last, who is joining us from Ethiopia in Addis Ababa, is uh, Dr. Gideon Timiosos, who is the current Attorney General of Ethiopia. Dr. Gideon received his Doctor of uh, Judicial Science in Comparative Constitutional Law in November of 2014 from Central University of Budapest, uh, from Central uh, European University in Budapest, Hungary. So welcome, uh, Mr. Gideon, to the panel. So thank you so much for joining this uh, panel. And I'm uh, excited that we have this distinguished panelist who would uh, lead us in the discussion. So with that, I would first let Dr. Abnek uh, go first. Uh, uh, provide a few remarks and then followed by uh, Ms. Brunway. So please go ahead, Dr. Abnek. Thank you, Professor Hashim. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation to this interesting uh, interesting uh, webinar. You're welcome. We are, we are witnessing a tragic conflict in northern Ethiopia, derailing a promising course of political change started in 2018 by the new Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. At issue today, I think, are two things. The causes and nature of the armed conflict in Tigray, as insofar as can be ascertained now. And secondly, the possible impact and ramifications of this conflict on political transition processes in Ethiopia. I'm aware that you know, foreigners, Frenchies, should be cautious in commenting on Ethiopia. I make these remarks as a, as a long-term field researcher and apologist, having worked mainly in the country in a variety of field sites in the past two decades. And when working in local level settings, I noticed the, uh, some of the drawbacks, also the advantages, but also the drawbacks of ethnic federalism on the local level, generating a politicization of many things and sometimes also really contentious. Now, when, you know, when addressing point one, the war of the past months, we might start by recalling the words of the biblical prophet Hosea, who said, for they have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. I fear that that has been happening with the TPLF. 
They have called upon the forces of war in light of their aims to dispute the legitimacy of the federal government and to ultimately, I think, return to Addis Ababa. Their preceding fall from grace and their decline as leading party in Ethiopia was, however, generated by their own non-democratic repressive policies in the political sphere and the non-transparent favoritist ones in the economic domain. To get a clear picture of everything regarding this armed conflict is still very difficult. To really assess what has happened, we have to study the antecedents of the conflict, the wider context, and the whole picture. Let me just briefly note that from its massive military operation on 4 November, it seems clear that the TPLF bears, you know, I think, main responsibility for the conflict. And the nature of that grisly night attack on the Federal Northern Commands shocked the nation. The psychological impact, the political impact, was huge. Any national government, I think, would have reacted. No country can continue to exist if it allows its armed forces to be slaughtered. Um, interesting is that, you know, so many of the global media were not, you know, helping things, clearing up things. They were more or less confusing things, not doing their homework, often giving incomplete or misleading news. And almost always they bypassed Ethiopian local media sources and government statements. Well, indeed, many things have happened that were problematic, if not unacceptable, such as the, uh, let's say, unwanted involvement of Eritrean troops, even in, on the account of the, uh, the general of the NDF, Belay Siyum, a couple of uh, weeks ago. You know, it is clear that the Ethiopian, Ethiopian army in this whole uh, affair has shown professionalism and relative restraint. But a war or an armed conflict like this, initiated by these faulty calculations by the TPLF leadership, I think, takes its own unforeseen dynamics. So we do have needless deaths, an estimated 1.5 million people now needing food and other aid, economic disruption, breakdown of public facilities, looting and so forth. We can talk about that later. Most important now, I think, is to stimulate a rebuilding of Tigray, politically and economically. The people of Tigray obviously must have a renewed stake in the Federation under a hopefully more democratic and transparent regional government. Uh, this brings me to the second point. How will the Tigray conflagration impact on the political transition process as started under Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed? Uh, this is ultimately the most crucial issue, and we can and must have some trust in the Prime Minister. The future of the Ethiopian Federation is not disintegration, but better maintenance and repair. The parliamentary elections of, uh, of June, uh, of coming June, should be held, of course, and Tigray should obviously be included in them. Tigray is a full and recognized vital partner in federal Ethiopia and in no way to be disadvantaged or denigrated. There are voices saying that this conflict threatens the current federation as a whole and makes it impossible to maintain it and that the federal government is engaged in centralization at the cost of federation. I think this is incorrect. Prime Minister Abiy and his government have moved to limit the inordinate economic grip of the TPLF party and business elite on the national economy, that's true. But he has not been heard saying that the constitution is to be abrogated or that the ethno-federal federation, ethno-regional federation, sorry, is to be terminated. On the contrary, if there is a mandate for that after the elections, they, he may aim to redefine and improve it. Certainly the current federation has its problems and was not being properly implemented, certainly not until, uh, let's say, uh, April 2018. 
not even on its own constitutional principles. In general, political ethnicity in America was made into a business model in the past 27 years, a business model. That is a wrong incentive structure. It, 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 it led to people creating power and jobs for themselves on the basis of ethnicity purely. It's a wrong incentive structure and very costly also. It has produced local conflicts based on the territorialization of ethnicity and has subverted federal cooperation. The Dubai conflict has, of course, led to some premonitions among certain elites in other regions. But eventually, a new modus vivendi of cooperation, exchange, and synergy must and can be found. Ethiopia is to reinvent itself, preferably with new and better quality political leaders, a thorough reset of the economic dispensation, and better agreements on federal, state, and regional budgeting. If more economic fairness and integration are not achieved, political disagreements and a kind of race to the bottom will follow. Surely there is now a need to have the elections, the solid party debates and deliberations across the political spectrum and to reinforce the reform agenda commenced in April 2018. The agenda, that agenda provides a unique framework still for opportunities for a new development and democratization. The future of Ethiopia does not lie in rehearsing the past, but in overcoming it and moving forward. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Abnick, for your uh, uh, thoughtful remarks on this. Uh, our next panelist is uh, Ms. Bronwyn Bruton, so please go ahead. Thank you so much for welcoming me this morning. I'm honored to join you. Um, and I thank the Institute for World Politics for convening us to discuss what is a very important and upsetting uh, series of developments in Ethiopia. Um, I would like to, to focus my remarks on um, exploring a, a subtext of, of the narrative on Ethiopia, an important one which is that the conflict in Tigray was somehow a war of choice that was initiated by the Ethiopian government as a form of vendetta. Um, many of us who are watching today are perhaps not very familiar with the history of the TPLF. And it is important to step back briefly and to explain that TPLF, although it was an important liberation movement which created modern Ethiopia, was also a repressive regime that held power in Ethiopia for 27 years, for almost three decades. It was not an elected government. It was not a democratic government. It was a government that ruled at the point of a gun. It was a government that violently suppressed secessionist movements in many parts of the country, particularly the Ogaden and the Oromo regions. It was a government that imprisoned tens of thousands of people, particularly youths. And it was a government that was responsible for torturing those individuals on a regular basis. The TPLF, at the head of its coalition, the EPRDF, was also responsible for decimating civil society, for making the work of civil society organizations largely illegal, for delegitimizing the press and suppressing all freedom of expression, it was a government that prevented Ethiopia from reaching its full potential. 
It was also a government that was authoritarian and not willing to surrender power. And we need to recall that one of the very special peculiarities of the situation that we find ourselves in is that the TPLF lost power through a popular uprising in March of 2018, which was remarkably peaceful and free of blood. However, because that transition was peaceful, it meant that the TPLF surrendered power without being disarmed. And so the situation that Ethiopia has found itself in over the past couple of years is in a sense, a situation in which there are two competing military powers, one, the Ethiopian government, and the other, the TPLF, which retreated to its northern stronghold with most of its weaponry and soldiers intact. For that reason, many of us would have predicted that conflict between these parties was inevitable. If Abiy came to power with any mandate at all in March of 2018, it was to rebalance the distribution of political, economic, and military power between Ethiopia's ethnicities. Because of its long, long rule, the TPLF had probably 70% or more of Ethiopia's military, political, and economic might. But it represented only 5 to 6% of Ethiopia's population. So obvious difficult task, which he attempted to accomplish peacefully, was to somehow persuade the TPLF to accept a proportionate amount of power, which meant dramatically reducing its power. And unfortunately, that is a situation that could not occur voluntarily. I think very few people would expect an authoritarian regime to sit back and quietly watch the decimation of its political authority. That is fundamentally what brought us to this path. And we can sit back and we can argue perhaps that Abi should have done this or he should have done that, that the formation of, of the PP was the straw that broke the camel's back. But fundamentally, I think we need to understand as an international community that we are all culpable in the situation that Ethiopia finds itself in. The international community sat back for decades and watched as the TPLF stole money from the Ethiopian population and used budgetary support from the international community to build up an excessive pile of arms, a pile of arms that was vastly disproportionate to the population that it represented. We're now reaping the harvest of those policies. And it's incumbent on the international community to assist the government of Ethiopia in resolving this problem. At the same time, I would like to say that I, I feel deeply concerned and worried by the focus that we are putting on litigating the past. And I hope that we can all put this, this conversation behind us and focus briefly on the resolution of the conflict in the Tigray. And most particularly, we should all be joining together to urge the Ethiopian government to do everything possible to open that space, both to humanitarian actors and to the media and to human rights investigators who can, can, who can perform credible and unbiased investigations of any human rights abuses or war crimes that have taken place in the North. The failure to quickly resolve this problem and to offer access to international actors is doing unimaginable and perhaps irreparable harm to relations between the Ethiopian government and its allies in the West. And there's nothing that I would like to see more coming out of this conversation than an ability to refocus our attention on dealing with that crisis quickly 
so that we can move our attention to even more important issues like the election, which is very quickly approaching us. And thank you for giving me the floor. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Ms. Bronwyn, for this uh, very informative uh, presentation. Our uh, third pan uh, panelist, uh, Mr. Falaka. So please go ahead. Thank you, uh, Professor Hashim, and I would like to thank the Institute of World Politics for hosting this important event. Um, it's a privilege to be among distinguished panelists. Thank you. I will, I will focus my presentation on the 2021 Ethiopian election and the peace-building efforts that needs to be addressed by the Ethiopian government. The intra-ethnic tension and the protracted social conflict which fueled a country protest in Ethiopia reached a tipping point when the PPLF dominated government was forced out in 2018 and ushered in a reform-minded leadership in its place. Dr. Abiy Ahmed won a parliamentary election in April 2018, dismantling the most restrictive political and economic system in Africa and paving for unrestricted access to commerce and political power for every citizen. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed inherited a country that was on the verge of collapse following 27 years of oppression under the TPLF-controlled authoritarian regime. The TPLF used ethnic federalism as a system for state formation and institutionalized exclusionary policies resulting in unprecedented ethnic strife among the population. The tight link between ethnicity and state resources and the ethnic federal structure has created obstacles for inter-ethnic interaction and inter-regional coercion. Relations between ethnic groups became increasingly competitive, resulting in tension and conflict as the as struggle for control over state resources continued leading to corruption and unsustainable economic disparity between the ruling elites and the population. The ethnic-based federal system created the incentive for ethnic elites to mobilize their base along ethno-nationalist lines leaving the future of the country at a greater risk of disintegration and displacement of millions of people. The divide rule strategy adopted by TPLF ruling elites was used as a tool for holding on to power, leaving no space for democracy and an inclusive political system. Under TPLF rule, ethnic federalism has neither eradicated ethnic conflicts nor achieved democracy. Once he came to power three years ago. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed initiated a major political reforms. However, the TPLF ruling elites opposed any reforms proposed by the Prime Minister. The changes affected its since the changes affected its ability to control state and economic power. Prime Minister Abiy took on a bold and extraordinary domestic, political, and economic reforms, paving the way towards democracy rule of law and sustainable development. To mention some of the key initiatives, Prime Minister Abiy released thousands of political prisoners and welcomed home, welcomed home exiled opposition leaders and opened the political space and promised to hold a free and fair election. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed surprised the region by making a peace with neighboring Eritrea and promoted peace and diplomacy in the wider Horn of Africa. The government expanded media freedoms. Reconciliation and Dialogue Commission was initiated to tackle ethnic and political grievances. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed created Ministry of Peace and appointed women to half of his cabinet. 
an independent election board was established. Exiled former political leader and judge Tukan Magdessa was appointed to chair the National Board of Election. He accelerated economic reforms and pushed for privatizing some of state-owned enterprises. Last but not least, established an independent human rights commission. Based on the current situation on the ground, Prime Minister Abiy needs to push for more reforms, including building democratic institution, upholding the rule of law, securing the safety of citizens, and ensuring transparency. Giving citizens a political freedom and conducting free and fair election are critical in transitioning Ethiopia to a democratic state. When citizens freely participate in the political system and elect their leaders, the transition to a democratic state becomes viable, which will contribute to a nation building with a greater caution and less ethnic polarizing in the country. Having a free and fair election has never been more important in Ethiopia considering the challenges the country is facing and the need to have a democratically elected government with a mandate to govern the country as necessary. All the stakeholders, including the current government, political party, civil society organization, election commission, and the media have historic opportunity and a moral obligation to support a democratic transition in Ethiopia through a fair, through a free and fair election. As far as peace building initiative, the newly established Ministry of Peace can design and implement a peace building initiative across the country. The Ministry of Peace should facilitate conflict resolution dialogues between ethnic groups, political party, and expand human rights and legal advisory council across all the region to carry out a peace building programs in Ethiopia. The Ministry of Peace should promote a peaceful resolution of conflicts, transformation by building inter-ethnic groups, trust and confidence among ethnic groups and political parties, encourage and create a space for negotiation between national political groups and engage in dialogue, mediation, and reconciliation between parties to achieve a nonviolent resolution and sustainable peace across the country. A nationwide, all-inclusive truth and reconciliation dialogue is necessary to address past grievances, allow closure, closure, and start the healing process among all Ethiopians. I hope the international community and the U.S. government will assist Ethiopia in strengthening democracy, spur economic development, and advance peace and security. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Falaka, for this um, uh, remarkable remarks and uh, now we uh, look forward to listening from our uh, fourth speaker uh, uh, Mr. Yusuf Badwaza so please go ahead and uh, provide your remarks uh, <clears throat> thank you uh, very much for the Institute of World Politics and uh, the other partners that organized this uh, important uh, conversation on uh, Ethiopia's uh, current uh, situation and uh, trying and get uh, insights on the way forward. Uh, I've been asked to uh, make a few remarks on uh, uh, issues of human rights and political space, uh, but I think uh, uh, as much as that is uh, really important uh, and I, I would uh, really like uh, to to limit my my remarks to that, I think uh, the backdrop of uh, this conversation that we're having uh, 
uh, is uh, truly uh, a situation where uh, Ethiopia uh, found itself uh, uh, over the past few months, uh, which is uh, uh, the war uh, in Tigray. Uh, I think we cannot uh, uh, talk about uh, human rights, political space, and the upcoming elections uh, without uh, that uh, sad uh, phenomenon uh, being uh, on the background uh, uh, or rather even uh, uh, at the center of everything at this point because of uh, the, the sad uh, uh, reality that, witness, that we are witnessing in terms of uh, how it took back uh, the country's progress in terms of people's uh, and communities' relationship and the massive uh, humanitarian crisis that it is uh, causing. Uh, so uh, as much as I think we would like uh, to move on uh, with uh, the business of politics and rebuilding the country, I think uh, we need also uh, to take time and examine uh, how uh, we got into this and how uh, a very promising uh, a political experiment that started uh, in 2018 uh, because of uh, a sustained popular protest that uh, forced uh, an entrenched authoritarian regime like the PRD uh, to make some concessions. Uh, so I, I would like to, to point to at least two points that uh, uh, I think uh, led us to to uh, this uh, sad war. I think uh, one, uh, in my view, is uh, uh, a legacy of uh, the deeply uh, authoritarian uh, culture that the APRDF uh, established uh, uh, in terms of uh, resolving differences. I think it is a failure uh, on the part of uh, political leaders to uh, resolve differences through a political process. Uh, I think that is uh, one, I think. And also uh, and the other uh, is a, a lack of uh, a clear uh, uh, and agreed upon uh, roadmap uh, uh, as to how uh, the transition, that the very promising transition uh, that started in 2018 uh, was to be led. I think the, the different parties having different views on how uh, the country should be moving forward in terms of detaching itself from decades of authoritarian rule uh, and embarking on a democratic path uh, also, uh, in my view, contributed to how, uh, how we ended up having to resolve uh, differences uh, much of our differences through uh, uh, force, the use of force, uh, and uh, the, the, the worsening uh, situation into uh, our way of uh, resolving uh, our differences uh, in, through a political process. I think, uh, having said that, I think in terms of uh, the, the human rights situation in the context of particularly the armed conflict, uh, it's, uh, I think, uh, 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 obvious that uh, war uh, claims lives, war 
causes uh, emergency situations that uh, uh, in theory uh, provides justifications for uh, uh, suppressing a lot of fundamental rights and in particular uh, in a political environment such as Ethiopia's where uh, the human rights situation uh, has uh, already been uh, precarious. Uh, I think the fact that uh, the emergency situation provided through uh, because of this uh, uh, war and the different uh, political and security challenges across the country uh, seem to have uh, uh, aggravated uh, the situation in which uh, we uh, begin to see uh, a slight uh, improvement uh, in the human rights situation. I think uh, uh, it's it's important to list many of the, the human rights abuses that followed uh, specifically the armed conflict in Tigray, uh, starting from the information and communication blackout uh, imposed by the government and also uh, the other warring party uh, as its own share in that uh, led to uh, uh, a deprivation of citizens uh, of the right to get unfettered uh, information uh, and uh, led to a number of uh, uh, uninformed uh, uh, commentary from within and outside uh, based on sound bites and uh, anecdotal uh, stories about how uh, what happened uh, and how uh, the parties are, the parties to the war are behaving uh, themselves. I think. Um, many of uh, the human rights uh, abuses have also been documented by none other than uh, domestic human rights actors, including the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission uh, and the Ethiopian Human Rights Council, uh, and the extrajudicial killings uh, uh, against ethnic uh, members of ethnic minorities, and the looting, uh, the physical uh, uh, attacks uh, are uh, a few of these, these rights violations. I think it's important uh, to document, investigate, uh, and report uh, on this and also uh, put records for uh, uh, future accountability. I think uh, uh, part of what we are witnessing now, uh, uh, part of the reasons for what we are witnessing now in to the fact that we are descending into uh, conflict after conflict is that uh, we haven't really agreed upon on how uh, we address uh, past uh, abuses, past uh, serious uh, human rights abuses. So the, this uh, dilemma uh, we're having between reconciliation and justice and peace, I, I think uh, need also uh, be addressed uh, if we are going to avoid uh, uh, similar uh, uh, sad situations. Uh, uh, in terms of the, the political space, again, as I've said at the outset, I think uh, one of the probably uh, the single most important political event in the country uh, is going to be the elections uh, this year. So uh, the political space for that, uh, I think, needs to be uh, examined uh, uh, very uh, closely in terms of 
whether or not all the parties to or the elections, uh, not just the political parties, the media, civil society, government, uh, local and regional uh, and federal uh, entities, uh, whether there is a readiness uh, and the desire. And, and I think most importantly, uh, whether or not citizens uh, feel uh, safe uh, and optimistic about uh, going to the polls and have been, whether or not they have been offered uh, real choices uh, in terms of uh, who uh, their next uh, uh, leaders are going to be. So uh, I think uh, uh, if you look at the many uh, security challenges that we have in terms of uh, targeted attacks on ethnic minorities in different parts of the country, uh, uh, the, the the recurrent complaints of major political parties about their members and their leaders uh, being in jail, uh, I think uh, need, need to be addressed. And I think another point is... Uh, if we move on, and then we can address, the, just for the sake of time, if, and then we would address uh, whatever you haven't uh, in the uh, Q&A section. Okay, thank you. Uh, but there was uh, for your a very insightful uh, remark. So. Uh, our uh, last, uh, but not least, uh, is Dr. Uh, Gideon. So Gideon, uh, Dr. Gideon, uh, as an attorney general, please, if you can uh, address some of the points raised by the panelists and uh, just bring us up to speed on, as someone who is on the ground, uh, working for the government in Ethiopia, and you see things up close, so you can bring us up to speed and address some of the issues that have been highlighted by uh, our uh, for our panelists. Thank you. Okay. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairperson, uh, for, and I'd also like to thank the organizers for organizing this important conversation and for putting up such a distinguished panel. Uh, so in the interest of time, I would try to avoid repetitions and try to address some of the matters I need, I think we need to attack. Uh, I mean, as far as the genesis of the conflict are concerned, I think that has been uh, well addressed by uh, some of the previous speakers, particularly uh, Professor Avin and uh, Ms. Ms. Burton have, uh, uh, and uh, Mr. Felega also have addressed the genesis of the conflict. So I don't need to go into that. Uh, to reiterate, I would simply say that this, this is a tragic conflict that has been forced upon the Ethiopian people and the Ethiopian government. This is something that we try to avoid. Um, the government has shown great restraint uh, and patience with regard to the TPLF. Um, we have tried to be as accommodative as possible, but the attack on the Northern Command was something that no one could tolerate, no self-respecting government. So as far as the genesis is concerned, it's well laid out. I don't need to go further into the details. Uh, now, in relation to that, um, something that I think is worth rectifying is um, uh, when Mr. Joseph was uh, addressing human rights concern, he, he said that there is an information blackout that could be considered as um, a violation of uh, an abuse of human rights. And there are two important points to uh, point out in this regard. First, 
as a matter of fact, by now it's well established that uh, the attack on uh, telecommunication infrastructure, uh, power generating infra infrastructure, were attacks carried out by the TPLF. This is something that could be verified later on by independent investigators and observers as well. TPLF operatives have been recorded by CCTV camera while they were sabotaging the uh, tele telecom center in Magari. So uh, the blackout in communication that was uh, that we have seen in the Tigray regional state was not a blackout imposed by the federal government. Rather, it's a blackout that is the result of the attack on uh, fundamental basic infrastructure carried out by uh, the TPLF. And that is something that could be uh, verified uh, by all interested. Um, having addressed that, uh, the other issue I think that is, uh, that is important to address is uh, the issue of humanitarian assistance uh, and access. Uh, in, in relation to that, it's a well-known fact that um, Tigray is one of the parts of Ethiopia where there is a great, great vulnerability for various reasons. I mean, it's part of the country that has been settled and cultivated for thousands of years. It's partly arid uh, due to climate change, other factors as well. Even in ordinary times, there is a great deal of vulnerability. Now, there is no gain saying that the conflict has exacerbated this situation and there is a need to provide humanitarian assistance, humanitarian support. And the government is committed to providing this support for those in need in partnership with the international community. In relation to this, I would like to call uh, everyone's attention to the statement issued by the World Food Program on 6th of February 2021, just uh, two days ago. I think that statement provides a very um, objective and a very fair assessment of the situation on the ground. The statement uh, um, indicates that about 2.5 to, to 3 million people require emergency food assistance. Uh, and that um, it also indicates that the existing agreement between the United Nations and the government of Ethiopia to provide humanitarian access in uh, Tigray is workable and that what we need to do is to expand and intensify already existing efforts. Uh, that statement also indicates that the government and um, the international community in partnership have already provided um, uh, food assistance uh, to up to 1.7 million uh, people who are in need of emergency food assistance. And our objective is in cooperation with organizations like the World Food Program and other um, partners would like to expand access, would like to intensify um, and scale up the already existing efforts to provide support for those in need. There is already a joint platform, an emergency coordination committee, and uh, would, uh, would uh, like to, um, as a matter of priority and urgency, 
push these efforts forward and ensure that everyone who needs humanitarian assistance and need will get that assistance and need. Uh, now, this is as far as humanitarian assistance and need is concerned. Um, now, uh, moving ahead, as far as the trajectory of the democratic reform and transition is concerned, um, I mean, it's, uh, it's obvious that uh, the reform process is a reform process that has faced many challenges and ups and downs. Anyone would expect there to be a linear and smooth transition from autocracy to democracy. In a context like Ethiopia, uh, that would be a very uh, naive expectation. Given our political culture, uh, the prevalence of ethnic division, and uh, the division and animosity that has been sown in the past, as well as the prevalence of poverty and youth unemployment, it's obvious that any transition to democracy in a country like Ethiopia would face huge challenges. I would say that despite this challenge, the reform process has not been derailed. Uh, it's still on course despite the challenge. And I'll, I'll try to uh, provide evidence uh, for this assertion. Um, the democratic institutions uh, that have been restructured uh, re-established as part of the reform process, have shown great level of autonomy and independence, and that's something that we are seeing uh, even now. Uh, I'm particularly referring to the National Electoral Board and the Human Rights, the National Human Rights Commission. If you see the reports and statements issued by the Human Rights Commission, as well as uh, the conduct of the Electoral Board in the past few months, uh, there is no doubt that these institutions are showing great autonomy and independence. For example, the National Electoral Board has recently issued a very stern statement against the ruling party, warning it against, um, warning it for reprimanding it for uh, conduct the National Electoral Board thought was in, in contravention with the appropriate code of conduct. Uh, you could also see statements and reports issued by the Human Rights Commission. These are reports and statements that do not necessarily cast the government in favorable light. Uh, in addition to uh, the autonomy and independence shown by these institutions, if you look at political and media pluralism, uh, there has never been this level of pluralism among the media and political parties in Ethiopia in our history. This is unprecedented. And the passage of the new media proclamation adopted within the framework, uh, within a framework that was very transparent, participatory, and inclusive, a process in which media practitioners and experts and human rights advocates had a leading uh, role to play. I mean, we can see that in terms of uh, space and freedom for the media, for political parties, we're still making progress. Uh, while there is a lot that needs to be done. As far as civil society is concerned, um, there is a vibrant civil society, the legislative and institutional reforms that we have put in place two years ago are bearing fruit, uh, and that is obvious for everyone to see. And most importantly, I would say that despite several shocks that, uh, and several crises that we have to face and overcome, 
the Ethiopian state, I'm not simply talking about the government, but I'm talking about the Ethiopian state as a political community has shown great resilience. And that, I would say, inspires confidence that we are in a position uh, to turn a corner. Uh, we expect the June 2021 election to be a huge milestone in our democratic reform process. We expect that it would provide further impetus and momentum for further reforms that we need to undertake. So yes, there is a long way to go. We're facing lots of challenges, um, many obstacles, but there is um, the determination and commitment both on the part of the government and uh, Ethiopians as a whole uh, to build an inclusive, democratic and pluralistic society. And I'm optimistic that despite the challenge, we will be able to accomplish that. In the interest of time, I'll stop my remarks here and I'll address any other issue uh, during the Q&A. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much, uh, Mr. Attorney General, for this uh, comprehensive uh, uh, statement on the state of affairs in Ethiopia and also addressing uh, some of the points that have been brought up by uh, Badawaza and uh, we can get into the Q&A. So please, uh, for the uh, audience out there, send your questions to our uh, uh, inbox so we can ask them in the webinar so if so please yeah feel free to send your questions in so with that we will uh, open it up for a QA. and uh, I got a bunch of questions here so uh, I would call on a specific uh, panelist to address a question that is uh, directed uh, to you and then others also can feel free if you have something to say you can say for sure so the first question goes to Dr. Abnick uh, the question is, what is the evidence that Eritrean troops are in Ethiopia? Even if it were true, wouldn't the government of Ethiopia say uh, if it is not open, uh, if it's not upon its approval? So I, I believe the question is talking about the troops uh, in Eritrea, if I got this question correctly. So why don't you go ahead, Dr. Abnick? Yeah, well, yeah, it's, it's a thorny issue, but uh, the Northern Command General Bella Sayou has said there are Eritrean troops in, in, in Tigray, and we didn't want to, but they are there, and they should preferably leave. Secondly, there is a report by the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission, the government-supported Human Rights Watchdog, which has said incredible evidence from uh, witnesses in the field in Tigray that they have seen Eritrean troops, and they have been doing the wrong things. So we cannot doubt that there are Eritrean troops active there, but. We, of course, we have to also take it, keep in mind that there are also parts of the TPLF dressed up in Eritrean army uniforms, it seems, also an equally credible evidence, which have been engaged in strange things as well and have been also obfuscating the, the situation. But we should not doubt that, and, and, and we, but we also should not think that it's totally, um, you know, surprising that the Eritreans have been drawn into this conflict. But the point is now that having notice this presence of the Ukraine, they should be really be enticed, I think, to move out and not to, to further complicate the situation, which is, a, is a, I think is a task of the uh, of the federal government and the federal army to, to, to stimulate. Uh, so I think there is, if you scan the sources, there is that there was this presence and the presence is dramatic and has to be ended. Thank you. Uh, any of the other panelists would like to uh, address this? 
flow. Okay, so the next question is directed to uh, uh, Ms. Uh, Bronwyn. The question is, how should we assess the recent statements and actions of the new Biden administration vis-a-vis -vis Ethiopia, the conflict integrity, the Ethiopian Reform Initiative? So why don't you go ahead, uh, Ms. So the U.S. response to Ethiopia has always been confused, I think. On the one hand, um, the United States has always been deeply concerned with the human rights situation um, and with democratic abuses that were prevalent under the former EPRDF, TPLF-led regime. Those concerns have continued. But now, as then, um, there are competing worries about maintaining a good relationship with Ethiopia, in particular because Ethiopia has been the backbone of U.S. counterterrorism efforts in the Horn of Africa, and because Ethiopia is perceived as the bulwark of stability in a, the very troubled Horn of Africa region. So there's always been a, a push-pull where the U.S. officials always want to criticize human rights abuses and they always wanted to, to criticize the failure of democratic processes in Ethiopia. Um, but they also are very afraid of, of pushing um, Ethiopia on a path towards instability, and they're very afraid of, of upending their good relations with the Ethiopian government. Obviously, there was a great amount of optimism when um, Prime Minister Abiy came into office, and there's been great enthusiasm for the reforms. But I think there has not been a consistent response by various actors in the U.S. administration. And what you're seeing is people erring on one side or the other of this push-pull that I've been describing. I hope with the Biden administration coming into office um, and with the appointment of key actors, there will be more consistency, um, and in particular, more attention given to this issue. It's been a big problem that, um, personally, I think the, the way that the government has responded to the, the crisis in Tigray has depended on who the, the person speaking is, whether it's Tibor or Godak or someone else. Um, and so I hope we'll see more institutionalization, but I wouldn't blame anybody for being confused because so far, um, it, my view is it's been a bit of a model on the U.S. side. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, any other uh, takers for this question? Uh, if you want to add to it, uh, Ms. Bronwyn has said. Okay, uh, thank you. We're moving on to the following question, and the following question is directed to Yusuf. The question is: Could you prove? Uh, could you provide proof that government destroyed communications uh, infrastructure? Uh, I, I think uh, uh, I was also talking about the the not just the, the infrastructure, uh, uh, the restrictions and the, the ban on uh, internet and telephone communications. I was also uh, talking about uh, the right uh, to access uh, and impart information and being uh, uh, the region a war zone, uh, it has been uh, restricted to uh, uh, international and domestic media largely. So uh, the major narrative uh, we have been hearing about uh, what was going on since uh, November 3rd 
was from uh, government media outlets. And on the other hand, uh, TPLF controlled uh, uh, media groups uh, uh, at the start of the war until uh, the time that they were not able to uh, broadcast uh, largely. Uh, but I think uh, to uh, put uh, this question of who does what uh, and when uh, to, to bed, I think uh, there needs to be uh, more access to independent reporting, be it uh, uh, international or domestic, uh, instead of just uh, expecting uh, everyone uh, to, uh, to take uh, stories from uh, the warring uh, parties uh, uh, without scrutiny. I think uh, that is uh, the point I would uh, like to to uh, underline and uh, the fact that infrastructure uh, was uh, destroyed uh, by uh, the TPLF. Uh, there have been, uh, I've seen uh, CCTV, what was called uh, by the Ethiopian Telecommunications uh, uh, Corporation as a CCTV uh, footage uh, regarding how and when uh, these infrastructures were sabotaged and destroyed. Uh, uh, I think that there, there, there is no uh, way to uh, actively uh, uh, dispute or prove that. But I think uh, if even if we take uh, that uh, for granted, uh, there needs to be uh, more uh, transparency on the part of the government so that all these recurring questions of uh, independent uh, information coming out from uh, the area and frankly from uh, all around Ethiopia uh, needs uh, to be addressed. Well, thank you so much for your clarification. Uh, Mr. Attorney General, would you like to uh, to add more information as far as what uh, Mr. Badwaz have brought up that the international, uh, they need to be access to the lo either local or international media and whether that, that's, uh, as, what was that's the case from your vintage point of view being uh, on the ground working for the government? Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairperson. I understand Mr. Yosef's concern and uh, uh, I understand where he's coming from, uh, from a human rights perspective, calling for access for journalists. Um, in relation to this, there have been local journalists, independent journalists, who have uh, been able to access the regime state. There are daily flights now, they can go there. They, they have done some reporting. But in relation to this, I think it's also important to remember the fact that there is a state of emergency and Within a context of state of emergency, freedoms like freedom of expression, freedom of movement could be temporarily derogated. So it is within this context that uh, there are some uh, restrictions, but uh, we're doing everything within our power to, uh, to ensure that there will be, the security situation will be improved and that there will be increased access um, as we go along. Thank you so much. Thank you, uh, thank you so much. Anyone want to add comment to that?
Uh, we're moving on to the following question, and this is directed to uh, Dr. Abnick. The question is, the question is asking, what is your assessment of the European uh, position to suspend development assistance to Ethiopia? And also what is required to reverse the heavy-handed uh, response uh, now that the humanitarian assistance is being scaled up, do you see the EU position being reversed quickly as someone who uh, specialized in the Horn of Af African? Yeah. yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, I just answered this question in the chat also, typing in my answer, but I, I cannot kind of elaborate on it a bit. I think it's a very unfortunate decision for the, from the EU to, uh, to, to, to immediately install a ban on, on providing aid, already promised aid. I mean, I, I regret to say that my our Minister of uh, Development Cooperation Foreign Affairs here in Holland, in the Netherlands, was one of the first to do that. Just based on, on superficial, incomplete media reports and, and certain contacts which were not properly checked. So I think this is really unfortunate. No one is helped by this kind of ban on, on aid money. Because at least of all people in Tigray. So I, I really don't understand why this, why they would have the illusion here in Europe that this, this kind of sanction would help anybody. I'm not sure that um, it will be quickly reversed. They will now start discussion, deliberation, what is arrival information, what is lies, what is this, what is that. But uh, I think they, they should really uh, engage more in getting the facts, doing their homework, also dialogue with the Ethiopian government, weighing all the evidence, and be skeptical about all the, the, the avalanche of, of strange press reports and reconsider that decision. And maybe in a kind of new supervision structure where the, the, the aid is properly distributed and can check where it is going and so forth. But I think a lot is possible with what is now in place in Tigray and the EU should, I think, should ultimately and quickly reconsider its position. Well, thank you, thank you so much. Um, the next question is directed to, uh, I think this question is to, uh, to the Attorney General. So the question is, uh, let me read this question quickly here. Um, okay, so the question is about students who have been uh, kidnapped, I believe. So can you, this is allegations of, uh, that Ethiopian people want to hear you about what happened to the kidnapped college students and why are the Amhara people uh, massacred? Uh, I think um, let me let me start by challenging the very premise of the question. Um, I would say that in the past uh, few years there have been uh, conflicts uh, that have been instigated and um, sponsored by various actors, including the TPLF. And uh, as a result of these conflicts, uh, ethnic minorities in various parts of the country, not just belonging to one particular ethnic group, but to different ethnic group have been attacked. Uh, whenever those kind of attacks have occurred, uh, the government has, the federal government has intervened and tried to hold those responsible uh, for these kind of attacks accountable. Um, so this is a tragic legacy of uh, the division and chaos that has been uh, institutionalized, that has been pushed, uh, deliberately pushed by uh, some actors. Uh, but this is a challenge 
within the transition that we are trying to tackle. And uh, I think this is all that I should say on this topic at this point in time. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Falaka, we're going to bring you in here to uh, the question is on whether there's a mention here of whether the uh, the the South African Truth and Reconciliation experience offer in the way of best uh, practice and things to maybe uh, help us in this uh, conflict in Ethiopia. So as someone who who have uh, studied in conflict resolutions, if you can shed more light on that and if any other from the panelists also want to add. Please feel free. Yes, I, I think that's uh, one of my favorite models. Um, uh, going back to uh, Nelson Mandela in the past said, uh, um, we don't solve our issues by talking to um, our friends, but we solve our issues by talking to our enemies uh, and people who are in conflict with. Uh, with that premises, uh, the South African uh, Truth and Reconciliation model is, was a great model, and I think Ethiopia has the opportunity to kind of create that type of all-inclusive across the board that helps participate, um, uh, bringing uh, religious leaders, political leaders, um, uh, leaders, young leaders on the ground, and having that truth conversation about past grievances uh, and where we go from now. Um, I think the the, uh, the problem that we see in our political narrative is that we just stuck in the past, uh, stuck in ideology of 16th century of uh, tribalism and ethnicism, and we need to bring in our uh, uh, youth who are uh, represent 70% of the Ethiopian population into the 21st century. We should should be talking about how we can coexist together, how we can um, stimulate our economy. Uh, bring Ethiopia out of poverty and uh, uh, help um, bring in um, better relationship among our neighbors. Uh, so uh, the fact that we're stuck in a 60th century type of uh, dilemma, our dialogue is, is sad, uh, but it's, it's time that we all have a frank and truth conversation about uh, the future of Ethiopia and uh, lead the uh, next generation uh, to the 21st century. We should be talking about economic development, providing uh, jobs and security for uh, our youth uh, instead of um, uh, you know, fighting about ethnic uh, differences, which to some extent are really uh, socially constructed. And uh, it is important that to have that uh, a truth and reconciliation dialogue move forward. Um, I think we never had any type of closure um, uh, in the past about our uh, different uh, grievances that we have and having that closure and uh, facing the facts and the truth and moving forward is uh, critical for the future of Ethiopia. Terrific. So this is a good segue to pivot on that um, truth and reconciliation, but also with your neighbors. And so the question here I have is, what is the role of uh, the uh, Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam in the current conflict, but also uh, to the point that um, Ms. Uh, Bronwyn brought up about the uh, U.S. administration. So what is the U.S. administration role going to be going forward vis-a-vis -vis Ethiopia, Egypt, Sudan uh, uh, tensions or regional conflict? But also if you can address to that same uh, line of uh, question, the border issues with Sudan. So um, I believe I will let 
the Attorney General will go first, followed by Ms. Bronwyn, and then Mr. Uh, Mr. Falaka, you can also answer the question. So go ahead, please. Um, I'll rather pass this question. Okay, sure. So uh, can you go ahead, uh, Ms. Bronwyn, and uh, an answer? Thank you. The, the border dispute between uh, Sudan and Ethiopia and also the concerns about the GERD, um, which obviously involves uh, Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia as well. Um, these are difficult questions, which fundamentally need to be resolved through dialogue between the parties themselves. I think it's my sincere hope that the Biden administration will take a more constructive approach to the GERD than uh, that um, adopted by the Trump administration. I think that President Trump himself poured oil on this conflict through his his irresponsible comments um, about the potential for Egypt to bomb the GERD. Uh, many, many rightfully um, regarded those statements as an invitation to Egypt to take kinetic actions, um, which certainly the Biden administration would not support. So again, it's early days before the Biden administration. And I think that in my view, there is some question about um, whether the United States would be the right party to play a mediating role in this, given its past statements and, and past positioning. Um, but I, I would hope that it would be possible. Um, again, I, I think that there's some um, there's some cleaning up that needs to be done uh, by, by President Biden's new team. But I think certainly the willingness to engage is there. Thank you. Mr. Fallick. Um, I go on back to the African uh, solution for African problems. And uh, yes, uh, it's important to, um, as independent mediator of the international community, uh, um, impartially can uh, participate and help or assist on the negotiation efforts. Um, however, uh, we Africans need to solve our uh, problems diplomatically by negotiation and uh, um, uh, talking through. Um, it's we have to come, I mean, we have to face reality come uh, in terms of uh, helping not only Ethiopia, uh, the entire region needs to develop economically. If we don't advance economically, develop and provide jobs for our youth, we will be in a cycle of con conflict for the, for the next hundred years. So our leaders and uh, uh, our community must uh, come to that understanding and uh, I, I believe we can solve the issue by uh, talking, by diplomacy and uh, it's, it's time, the time has come that we need to lift uh, our respective countries uh, uh, out of poverty. Thank you. Thank you so much. The next question is directed to the Attorney General, uh, Dr. Gideon. Uh, the question is, what is the Ethiopian government doing to provide fat base frequent public updates about the internal and external conflicts and challenges that are facing Ethiopia. I think you mentioned a couple of them, but if you can elaborate more based on the question. Uh, okay, so I think the question is what the government is doing to uh, update um, and to provide information update for those interested regarding um, conflicts. Let me start by considering the fact that I don't believe that we have done enough 
in terms of communicating, in terms of making our case and uh, providing sufficient updates, uh, both for the international, particularly for the international community. I mean, you could attribute this to a number of factors. Uh, Ethiopians, by and large, tend to be shy, very reserved, sometimes um, hoping that the facts would speak for themselves. But this has exposed us to a barrage of uh, disinformation, which has which had been quite detrimental to our national interest. There have been initial attempts uh, to have a dedicated fact check, uh, social media posts, and to provide daily briefings for the international international media outlets. Uh, we need to revitalize those efforts. Uh, these kind of conversations are very important and helpful in that regard. Uh, and the engagement of Ethiopians in the diaspora, Ethiopians uh, living in Ethiopia as well, uh, uh, to provide updates and information and perspective is very important. Uh, so both the government and um, the friends of Ethiopia and Ethiopians as well need to do more. And uh, this, is, uh, this is something that I'd rather concede. Uh, thanks. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Badwaza, in your remark, you spoke about the culture of authoritarianism in Ethiopia, but also by way of saying that Ethiopia need to do better in terms of uh, resolving the differences and uh, the views and th that has contributed to what uh, Dr. Gideon is talking about. How do you uh, bring about this culture of transparency, but also just keeping the the public uh, in the loop? Uh, thank you. I, I think, uh, as uh, Dr. Gideon just mentioned, that there seemed to be uh, a belief uh, on, on the part of uh, the, the different uh, government entities that uh, as long as they, they do good, as long as uh, they have the, the truth uh, in their side, uh, there does not need to be uh, any need to to communicate that. I think uh, in this uh, yeah, information age, I think uh, as much as the substantive delivery uh, on policy uh, uh, is is uh, crucial. I think uh, the ability to to communicate that to citizens and to uh, other audiences uh, is also uh, important. I think uh, it's not just uh, in the context of the current elections. I think there there has been some uh, serious limitations uh, on the part of. Uh, the government in terms of uh, uh, putting in place a public-facing uh, communication strategy uh, to uh, talk about uh, the, the, the very uh, uh, remarkable, particularly in the beginning, reform measures that the government uh, has been taking. So uh, that, I think, created a very big void uh, in terms of uh, how uh, citizens uh, understand where uh, this uh, political transition is going and how uh, it affects their uh, daily lives. I think there's no denying that, uh, particularly the first few months uh, of the political transition were uh, really uh, dynamic and prom promising, uh, but I think that uh, the aspect of communications uh, uh, 
and engaging the, the stakeholders, including citizens, was uh, very uh, sorely missed. I think there, there is a lot of work uh, that needs to be uh, done uh, in that regard. I think the, that culture uh, of not uh, having this public-facing way of doing uh, communication uh, also uh, uh, is reflected uh, in, in, the, in the current uh, crisis and also uh, even though that does not uh, replace the need for uh, independent verification, I think uh, at this point, whether uh, we like it or not, there seems to be uh, uh, the, the, the expectation that uh, the government seems to have uh, the information, but uh, uh, for one reason or another is not sharing them uh, widely. Uh, uh, I think that, that that's a limitation. Going back to, I think, the, 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 the political culture, I think I was talking about uh, this being a transition and the old system, the old habits of doing things are still in place. The institutions are uh, more or less in place. The, most importantly, the mindset uh, uh, that uh, EPRDF established in terms of uh, the opacity uh, of doing doing things, the very uh, uh, close kept uh, nature of uh, information uh, uh, and uh, strategies is, is still uh, affecting the way uh, that government is doing things. I think uh, uh, this also raises the question that who uh, even within the government believes that they are uh, 100% on board to an open and democratic uh, and transparent system of government. I think there is uh, a lot of work uh, that needs to be done in terms of not just reforming the, the institution, but working uh, on the mind uh, set uh, of uh, members of the, the, the government itself. Uh, and I think one last point uh, in this regard is the, the elections. I think uh, we have seen uh, a snapshot of uh, how reformed institutions could deliver promising uh, prospects but by looking at uh, the National Electoral Board of Ethiopia, uh, the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission. Uh, and, I, and I think these are uh, efforts that need to be replicated elsewhere. Uh, I think the, the election management, uh, as we all know, uh, is not the, the beginning and the end of uh, elections, but I think that aspect uh, of the elections so far by uh, the NEB needs to be uh, acknowledged. But I think, uh, as I said, most importantly, it is uh, creating the, the level playing field and it is uh, about uh, securing the confidence of citizens and uh, the, 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 the ability to instill uh, confidence and safety among voters that, that would uh, make both uh, the lead up to the elections and uh, the elections itself, and also uh, uh, avoiding uh, post-election violence. Uh, thank you so much for this uh, uh, extensive answer. Uh, if I may bring in this, uh, Bronwyn on this, yeah, you, uh, I think in your remarks before, you wanted us to, you wanted the conflict or at least the discussion to be focused and centered on, uh, on 
probably maybe the he wanted to it on the elections if i remember correctly uh, so if you can elaborate more on what do you think it's what is this diverting uh, the conflict in the in the tigray region what is it diverting us away from and what do you want us to do in light of what uh this uh, question is uh, what uh, was has answered in terms of the upcoming elections i think that there's there's a very unfortunate um there, there's a very unfortunate sinkhole that we've fallen into here where it, because there has been a delay and perhaps an unreasonable delay by the Ethiopian government in providing access to parts of Tigray, it is it has created an opening for TPLF affiliated media networks and individuals to launch claims against the government that many people would consider to be um, exaggerated. And because it's been impossible to go into Tigray to a large degree to verify whether these claims are true or false, it's created a sense of, of intense worry in the international community, a fear that a genocide could be taking place, fear that war crimes could be taking place. And the kind of, the kind of simple verification that would disprove these, um, these allegations has not been possible. And that's pushing us in a direction, um, a terrible and dangerous direction, frankly, where very well-intentioned members of the US government in, in Europe are asking themselves whether they have a moral obligation to consider sanctions on Ethiopia, to consider bringing charges at the ICC against members of the Ethiopian government. And my view is that it not only is this unnecessary, but it's deeply damaging to Ethiopia's prospects moving forward. Because once you're on that path of, of sanctions, for example, it's very, very difficult to go back. Once the government has a cloud hanging over its head, it's hard for that cloud to disappear. No matter how many times we gather in forums like this to talk about rightfully, um, the, you know, the, the terrible legacy that the Ethiopian government, the current Ethiopian government is trying to repair the legacy of, of ethnic segregation and repression. I mean, the, these are very valid points, um, but all of these conversations are going to be deferred as long as the focus is on this humanitarian crisis in the North. I'm very glad to hear of the new agreement that's been struck um, with WFP that will facilitate entry into Tigray. I really hope that that will help to dispel some of the worst fears. And I also hope that, that the sense that the Ethiopian government is really cooperating wholeheartedly with efforts to illuminate what's going on in the North will do a great deal to dispel, um, to dispel these, these fears by Western policymakers. Because Ethiopia is on the verge of you know, a, a tremendous historical moment. The elections that are scheduled for June will make or break the transition. And I think that there are real questions about whether June is the right time to hold those elections. Those questions have been raised by opposition parties in Ethiopia. And as long as the international community is focused on what's happening in the North, they are not engaging on questions of the election, whether, whether they should be pushing for postponement, whether they should be deploying more and more resources to support the election so it can go forward credibly in June. 
these are the these are the issues that are fundamentally going to shape Ethiopia's trajectory for the next decade or more. And we're not dealing with them right now because of the inability to just get up there in the north and find out what's going on and do what has to be done. Um, and that's tragic. And to be honest with you, I think it benefits nobody more than, than the old TPLF leaders themselves because they are, again, the focus of all of the attention. And that doesn't serve anybody. And so we all need to cooperate to make sure that, that we get past this moment and start concentrating on what is, what is unquestionably more important. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Gideon. What do you say to what uh, Ms. Uh, Bronwyn has brought up? Uh, you've answered the uh, part that has to do with the opening up with the uh, WF on January 6th, which is a good sign, I guess. But uh, what do you say to the second part as far as the election being held on time? What is Ethiopia doing in, uh, from your vantage point of view, being working with the government? Uh, as, as far as the timing of the election is concerned, um, I think uh, it's it's something that most political actors in Ethiopia uh, agree that there is a need uh, to hold the election at this point in time. It, it already had to be postponed for a year due to COVID-19. Uh, that was, uh, to some extent, already controversial. Um, the National Electoral Board has undertaken the necessary preparation to conduct the election on time, uh, and it's a widely anticipated election in most parts of the country. Uh, we can conduct the election without any serious security or logistical uh, issues. Uh, there could be pockets where it could be uh, difficult to have it. There might be some snacks here and there, but by and large, we think it's a very important milestone for the transition process. It's, um, um, you know, democracy is not all about elections, but uh, to tackle uh, the very critical um, reform agendas we need to tackle, uh, there needs to be a broader mandate, a clearer mandate, and uh, having this election uh, uh, in June would be very critical. Um, so I think it's important uh, to go ahead with it. Um, it's, not it's not only a constitutional or legal requirement that we hold it then, uh, but it's also something that uh, most Ethiopians want to have, uh, to have it, get it over with, and move on to uh, different uh, um, uh, issues. I mean, uh, there is the economic when talking about the conflict, when talking about the election, uh, we also have to remember that uh, the economy uh, and other issues uh, need serious attention. And in order to tackle those, I think we need to put this behind us. Thank you so much. Uh, I would like to bring in uh, Dr. Abnick into the discussion. And the next question is uh, about do you think uh, Ethiopia's system of ethnic federalism should be dismantled and replaced with a new system of organizing regions that is not based on ethnicity? As long as ethnic federalism does exist, how should regional governments dominated by one ethnic group uh, protect ethnic minorities living within their borders? And also, how can these regional governments make their minorities feel like they are 
uh, a citizen that they are protected. And also, if you can, uh, uh, Mr. Falka, if you can also chime in with uh, Batua's following third. So that would be good. So please go ahead, Dr. Abnick. Hello, Dr. Abnick. Seems like uh, Dr. Abnick uh, has uh, some. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, no problem. This is the, the question, the crucial question, of course, right? And much discussed in the past 20 years. Uh, I have no clear answer. I mean, I see the advantages historically of recognizing ethnicity, recognizing suppressed cultural ethnic groups, ethno regional groups, which had no proper say which had no access to state structures. I see the emancipatory effect of that. But unfortunately, you know, it has been used in, a, in, in callous ways in the past 27, 28 years. And it has uh, contravened constitutional premises. It has contravened uh, economic uh, equality. And it has also led, as I said in my introduction, to a, an undue territorialization of ethnicity, excluding, you know, excluding groups which do not really feel or have a territorial bond with a so-called ethnic homeland, which is about maybe 25% of the population in cities and so forth. They have no, they are, they are diffuse in their orientation on a certain ethnic, traditional ethnic group or country. So there is this positive heritage, but there is also the, uh, the 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 effect the, the the practical effect of ethnic federalism working sometimes against economic and political processes in the country as a whole in terms of full democratization in terms of full economic uh, participatory access to state resources and so forth so I'm, I have no answer to to what to do I think there is no prospect of really totally reforming and getting rid of ethnic based federalism. But I think a cautious way towards, you know, rethinking the, the structure as it is would be good. I mean, uh, I think uh, the Prime Minister has, has, has talked about that. As I said in my, in my talk in, my beginning, uh, in the beginning, he did not question the Constitution and he did not attack ethnic federalism as such. But he wants to capitalize on the possibilities that structure offers for cooperation and synergy. That is, I think, a way forward, the way forward, you know, to, to draw richness from diversity, like some other countries have done. In, in a way, Ethiopia is unique and in, in the sense of having politicized ethnicity in an era where the idea itself is less and less popular. Look at Tanzania, look at Ghana. There is no such politicization of ethnicity. So it has to be rethought, I think. And also, there are so many, there are so, so, such waves of studies made on ethnic federalism by, by, you know, by foreign academics, but also increasingly by a huge number of Ethiopian scholars, which are moving in the same direction, more, trying to rethink the positive aspects of it, but trying to ultimately also, you know, reform it in a, in a way which, which enhances cooperation. I think that's the way forward. So a, bl a blanket cancellation of ethnic federalism will not be in, in the books, but a rethinking and a, an optimization of what it can offer to your population as a whole, as, as a nation, is certainly in order. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, Mr. Falaka, what do you think? Yeah, I think uh, Dr. Um, Abnicaster um, did a 
a great explanation of it. Um, but what I think in terms of uh, ethnic federalism uh, is very, a very tricky question. Uh, we should recognize and provide a, you know, political and economic access to all ethnic groups in Ethiopia. But however, we have over 80 ethnic groups in Ethiopia and uh, uh, creating a structure, state structure, um, uh, based on ethnicity makes it difficult for economic and uh, political um, uh, participation. Uh, recognizing um, uh, the languages, the culture, and bringing all ethnic groups uh, and uh, accepting the humanity of it, very, uh, very, very critical. But uh, um, creating a political parties and system based on ethnicity is, is making it more complicated and difficult um, uh, implement. Um, and the other, I think, the what a lot of people miss is uh, someone like me who has multi-ethnic background. Where do where do we fit, fit in in the system? I think. Uh, I believe that's the silent majority. There's a lot of Ethiopians who have uh, multi-ethnic um, backgrounds and they don't have a place in that structure. So uh, uh, that's something to think about uh, when we, we're talking about uh, ethnic federalism. I think federal system, federalism system is good, but however, um, creating a political system and a structure based on uh, ethnicity uh, uh, might not yield the result that we want. Uh, to put it in, in the perspective, uh, take the United States and imagine if you divided uh, Caucasians, Black, Hispanic, and Asian states. How, how does that work in terms of movement, economic activity, political activity? It creates more uh, division and uh, friction than uh, bringing uh, positive light. Okay. Dr. Badwaza, if you can uh, briefly comment on this and then we'll move on. We're running out of time. There's still a lot of questions, so please. Yeah, no, no I, I think I, I agree with both uh, Professor Obenik and uh, Basu. Uh, I, I think uh, there is no denying that there are uh, uh, significant changes uh, that were introduced since uh, the, the adoption of the, the federal uh, constitution in '95. I think. Uh, I, I, I don't think that there is uh, a way of going back uh, from that in terms of uh, duly recognizing uh, uh, each and every uh, ethnic community in Ethiopia. I think that the problem is when ethnicity becomes uh, the major point of a political organization. I think uh, that if uh, any uh, revisitation of this uh, constitutional structure uh, is to do, I think, uh, should focus primarily on mitigating uh, the effects of ethnic uh, politicization of ethnicity, uh, which is uh, easier said uh, than, than, that, <laughs> uh, than done, but, but I think uh, I agree uh, with the fact that there needs to be uh, a, a close look at uh, the, the current uh, political structure, i.e. the constitution, uh, with uh, Ethiopians having uh, an elected government uh, that has uh, the support of a broader uh, constituency uh, for them to embark on a constitutional reform process. Thank you so much. Uh, our next question, and then we would uh, try to conclude. So our next question is, why isn't there any discussion in the international media and interest groups about the genocide committed in Mekadra 
uh, currently in the Tigray region against the ethnic Amharas. So if you can, uh, um, Attorney General, please, if you can uh, take that question and followed by Ms. Bronwyn, and then we would uh, try to conclude after that. Thank you. Uh, as far as why the international community is not saying more about that, why it's, that's not a topic of conversation, I mean, it's very difficult for me uh, to comment up about that. I'd just like to point out the fact that we have, uh, the relevant authorities have concluded their investigation of the atrocities committed in Micadra. Uh, there was a fact-finding mission, a human rights investigation conducted by the Human Rights Commission. You know, separate from that, there has been also a invest criminal investigation by law enforcement agencies. That investigation has already been concluded, and we expect charges to be placed in the coming few weeks. Um, but uh, as far as the international community's silence on this topic is concerned, it's a puzzle for me as well. So. I can't really explain it, so I'll, Thank you. I'll defer to the other panelists. Okay, thank you so much. Anyone want to add uh, to this? Otherwise, we're moving on. Uh, Ms. Bronwyn, it's your turn. I, I would express my, you know, my deep consternation that the massacre at Micadra has not received more international press attention. and. More than that, that the continuing assaults on the Amhara community have not provoked a level of outrage and attention that is assuredly merited. Um, I think part of the reason for that is that the Western press tends to work with narratives. And all of the articles that have been written thus far about this conflict have focused on the potential for the Tigrayan minority to experience genocide at the hands of Amhara and federal troops and potentially Eritrean troops as well. And that makes it very difficult for members of the press to, to deviate from that line. Um, it would be very helpful for some international media organizations to take a step back and talk about how the TPLF had in fact been an authoritarian regime, and that they entered this conflict with what most people assumed was a fairly pronounced military advantage. Um, that, that this is really a, has been a, a military conflict of equals, it was assumed. Um, but without that underlying um, set of facts having been established, I think it's very difficult for the press to, to think about how to incorporate the Amhara and other, other atrocities that are taking place. Thank you so much for your remarks. And thank you so much to our panels. I would like to bring in someone who is uh, who has been very helpful in bringing us together and bringing all of you, the panelists, and without which we could not have had the event. Uh, Gannett uh, Gusi is, uh, please welcome and say a couple words and we'll conclude after this. Yeah, thank you everyone for coming. Uh, first and foremost, I would like to thank uh, Florindo from Friends of Angola for suggesting to have this forum and Professor Hashim for his willingness to organize this event and Besu for hoping with organizing and of course the panelists for accepting our invitations. Uh, we co-sponsored this webinar because there's so much misunderstanding of the current situation in Ethiopia. We wanted to help the public to have a clearer understanding. I hope uh, the experts in our panels clarify some of the misinformation that's dominating the media. 
please feel free to email Professor Hashim or myself with any questions you have with this. We conclude the event. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Gwyneth. Thank you so much, you. Uh, our uh, panelists, for your time and for your great uh, and very actively and lively uh, event. There's still more questions to be answered, so we just don't have uh, eternity of time to answer them. I will encourage the uh, the audience to send the email, uh, you know, questions uh, to so to be answered. So maybe we could still follow up with you and and maybe you can answer the questions in a later time. So thank you so much for tuning in to our amazing guests on Facebook, YouTube, and we'll look forward to having you in future uh, series of this African uh, Strategic Forum, bringing thoughtful leaders just like we've had today. So thank you so much. It has been my honor to moderate and coordinate.